Good morning, church. Have you ever watched uh, an event, a sporting event in particular, and had no clue what they were doing? That's exactly the one I was thinking of. I actually got to play a tiny, tiny bit of cricket with some boys in India. They found it very entertaining. I never really did figure out what we were doing. But I I remember the first time I saw cricket, actually, uh, just a bunch of people in a park. Lots of folks had brought picnics, and they were kind of sitting around the edges, but it didn't seem to be any out-of-bounds or in-bounds, so sitting around the edges seemed to me like a dangerous thing to do. But they sat out there with picnics. As I asked someone about it, someone told me, oh, yeah, these matches can go on for hours and hours. Then I understood why everyone had a picnic because you needed to sustain yourself throughout the rest of the match. But I did, I, I watched it, I, I, I played it a little bit, but I still have no idea what's happening. People are running back and forth, and I'm not sure why or who is in charge of what and how you score. I just have never figured that out. And if you want to explain it to me, you're welcome to, but wait till after everything else is over, because I'm going to need to give you my full attention. Because it's still confusing to me. Have you ever been in a in a conversation or even in a debate? You're arguing your point with someone back and forth, and suddenly, somewhere in the midst of all of that, you realize you are totally outmanned. That the other person is way above your intellectual power. And you have been futilely speaking nonsense while they have graciously continued to try to explain what you do not understand? You ever won an argument and realize afterwards you lost? I want to talk about winning at the wrong game. Winning at the wrong game. The Bible talks about this actually quite a bit. There are lots of places where the Bible addresses things like this. This passage in particular in Matthew 16 says, What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You've won at the wrong game, right? You gained the whole world. You were the, you were the king of the world. You could stand up there on the front of the Titanic with your hands in the air and shout, You were the king of the world, and it would be true. But you lost your soul. What would it profit you in the end if you owned everything that was going to be burned up anyway? What profit? What would you exchange? What would you exchange or what might have been exchanged? Um, Jacob and Esau, we're in, a, we're in a battle of wits. Esau comes in from the field. From the biblical description, Esau's a bigger, stronger, tougher guy. He's the hunter. He's the macho guy. He rolls into this situation really hungry, really at the mercy of his desires. Ever been at the mercy of your desires? He's at the mercy of his desires, which makes you extremely vulnerable. And as he comes in at the mercy of these extreme desires, he is starving. He's sure that if he doesn't eat soon, he's going to just pass out and die. And his brother, who happens to have made a bowl of soup. Now, if you're making points on your man card, being out in the field hunting gets you points. 
Making bowls of soup, not so much. So his little brother is making a bowl of soup. In walks Esau, unaware of the game he's playing. Right? He doesn't even know what game he's playing. And as he wanders in, his brother begins a negotiation. Esau has no interest in the negotiation. He's just focused on the bowl of soup. And the brother says, hey, how would you like to trade me the birthright? Birthright is two-thirds versus one-third of the father's wealth. How would you like to trade me your double portion of God's blessing on our father for some soup? Now, we all look at that. We're all saying, no, don't do it. Crazy idea. Bad choice. Bad decision. Bad bargain. Don't sign this contract. And he goes, what good is the birthright to me if I starve to death right here, right now? Right? Don't you just want to, hey, wake up. But have you ever been at the end of your rope where your desires are concerned? Have you ever been at a point where your desires are really driving your decisions? Now you're in a game. Esau loses a game he didn't know he was in. He's out there conquering the wilderness. And he comes home to lose the game. The most important one. We are set up for this in our time. We have been crafting messages to one another about filling our needs and desires and wants for so long that we are actually believing the stuff on TV is a must. We see the commercial go by and 30 seconds ago, we had no interest in this, but all of a sudden, you know, these last 30 seconds have made an impact on my life. I don't know if I can live without one of those. And you can fill into those. It can be almost anything. At the moment, it might be hunger that's really gotten a hold of you. And all of a sudden, you're on the move to go get a taco and you aren't really sure why. You find yourself getting up from the TV, wandering over to the, over to the, to the uh, refrigerator, looking inside. Why? Because of something you saw on television. Because you're in a game, you're not aware of the rules of the game. We live in a society where the biggest argument for success is he who dies with the most toys wins. Right? Isn't that the descriptor of success? He who dies with the most toys wins. But here's the crazy thing. Who has the most toys? Who has the least toys? They're both dead. This was Solomon's point when he's saying, at the end of your life, you'll have all this stuff and you give it to somebody who's not going to take care of it. Soap bubbles, soap bubbles, it's all soap bubbles, vanishing and gone. Winning at the wrong game. Today I want to kind of walk through a a bit of a narrative. 
It's, it's still Easter in my heart, in my mind. I've still been thinking about the cross. In fact, in the middle of last week, in the, actually in the middle of preaching, you were just really glad I didn't run off on this because it would have been an extra hour. Uh, in the middle of preaching last week, the Lord's kind of pushed this into my brain, remind, put it into my mind. I hadn't never thought of it before. So I just want to walk through a little bit of the story around the crucifixion today. Do you remember the story? It begins with Pilate. Pilate, that's the governor of, of the, the area around Jerusalem. He's an unwilling participant in this game, right? He's an unwilling participant. He's being forced into an argument. He doesn't want to have any part in. He hasn't asked for this. He's not interested in this. He's an unwilling participant in the game, but he's in the game. You ever feel like you're unwilling participant in a game, but find yourself in the game anyway? He's in the game. Then he, Pilate, who's been trying to get out of this the whole time, said to them, this is the priests and leaders of Israel, the third time. How many times? Third times. What happens when you swing the third time? You strike out. He said to them the third time, why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. So he's trying to appease them now, right? I'll, I'll beat him and just let him go. No, it's not a reason for death here. We'll, um, we'll give him the equivalent of a slap on the hand, only a Roman slap on the hand was a lot more violent. I'll chastise him and let him go. They come back, the chief priests and rulers, insistently demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests did what? Prevailed. Who won? Who won? The chief priests, the people around them, the voices crying out for crucifixion. They won. So Pilate gave the sentence that it should be as they requested. Winners and losers. Who's losing really? Who's winning? It's funny, isn't it? Because we know the end of the story, and so we're looking at the story completely differently. We have a, we have a set of glasses that we've been on, we on, we're not even aware that we have them, but since we know the end of the story, we look at the story differently. They won the argument and completely lost their way. They backed themselves into an argumentative corner that they couldn't get out of. Ever done that? You, you back yourself into an argument? I have a friend, good, dear, wonderful, wonderful person, way too smart for me to ever open my mouth around. When I was a youngster, um, he taught my, uh, my, my Sabbath school class, okay, um, the, the, the class the kids were in, right? I was, I was about 15, maybe 14 at the time when he was doing this. And he, he was brilliant. I, I, I loved hearing him teach because he just knew things about everything. You could ask him any question you wanted. And so I kept probing. I, I didn't have the appropriate amount of respect for the man's intellect. So I kept looking for the weakness. There's got to be some area of, of life that he doesn't understand. There's got to be something. And so I knew he was kind of a nerd. Right? And so I kept probing for that nerd gap. Where's his gap in understanding? So I thought I had him one day. 
I was all of maybe 15 or 16 at this time. I brought up the internal combustion engine, which, of course, at my great age, I had learned an immense amount about. And I thought, got him. He can't possibly know anything about this. He's a nerd. What does he know about cars? The guy's a mechanical engineer. (laughs) I just brought a butter knife to a machine gun fight. And so I started to ask him some questions. And he just responded very politely, very just a really kind, gentle man. And he just responded and just started asking me. And I ran out the, the I ran out of my vast amount of experience like within 30 seconds. And now I'm in this corner. He's talking. And I'm hearing Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. Because I'm so far over my head, I have no idea what he's talking about in this area of my expertise. And there I find myself in the corner. These guys have won the argument. They've gotten their will. And they're completely unaware that they've lost everything. They have no clue how deeply they are under this argument, how far they are out of sync with God. They've completely lost their way and they've backed themselves into such a bad corner that they will defend it to the end. I find myself talking to a mechanical engineer trying to defend what I do not understand. Crazy, huh? Great lesson for life. That day, when they arrive at Golgotha, there are three men crucified. We often forget that three men died that day, right? Three men died that day. We we focus on Jesus, which is, of course, the most significant one, but three men died that day. There were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, where they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. The Bible introduces us to the fact that Jesus isn't alone there on the hill, that there are two others with him. There are three of them. Then one of the criminals who were hanging there blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Now, if we had read the whole story and gone to all the Gospels, you'll find that people are doing this all around the cross. People are mocking Jesus from all around, speaking to him, telling him, hey, if you're such a big guy, come down. You said you could rebuild the the temple in three days. Well, get yourself off the cross. Come on. Let's see the big mouth now. Come on. Who looks like the loser? Who's losing? This guy... Dying alongside Jesus throws his lot in with the crowd. Ever thrown your lot in with the crowd? You know, it's it's real tough when you're 14 or 15. You really want to fit in. And so you try hard to, to, to fit in, throw yourself into the crowd. But you know, you also know when you were 45, you threw yourself into the crowd sometimes, right? 
You know that even at 65, you kind of want to fit in. You want to make sure that you go. You know, one of the crazy things that happens to us when we get to be in that retirement age bracket is we now re-enter high school. I mean, it's not actually high school, but it feels a lot like high school because everything in your world suddenly changes. You had an identity. It was what you, it was your work. And you had a process that you were working. You got up at a certain time. You did certain things. You, you, you knew what the benefits would look like. You know, if you succeeded, what that success would bring you. You knew all the processes. They were all right there and manageable and you got it. And then you retired. And it was like being back in high school, walking in the cafeteria as a freshman, wishing the tray was bigger so that you could hide behind it. We even use those trays as like bumpers between us and the other people, right? If things got too comfortable, uncomfortable, did you ever notice this? When you, things got more uncomfortable, you push the tray out further? I went to a big high school. That tray got out there. There were 3,000 kids in my high school. There were more people in my high school than my college. And you're 65, you're 67, you're 68, and you feel like you've just walked into high school again. Because the world has changed around you and you're sort of trying to align yourself with this new thing. Maybe you moved to another state. Maybe you moved into a retirement village. You know what that means? I left my neighborhood and now I've got to find a new neighborhood and make new friends. And it's, it, I, I'm not knocking it. I, I think very often they're the best move. But it still feels like you've just walked into the cafeteria, right? This guy's hanging on a cross about to give up his life and he decides to throw his voice in with the crowd. Even in that moment, he can't find his independent voice. I wonder how much of that brought him to the place that he finds himself in that day. Man, you can, you can win at the wrong game. Fit in with the wrong people and you find yourself doing the wrong things and then you find yourself just wrong. And you're not living the life God hoped for you. You're not li- living the life God planned for you. You're living some other life. And it's just wrong. The other guy, remember there are three guys. I always picture this guy on the left. I don't know why I always picture him on the left. I picture him on Jesus' left. You picture him wherever you want. The other one, answering his friend, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God seeing you under the same condemnation? So aren't you even afraid of God? Come on. What, how can you now throw your voice in behind this? Even now, as we stand on the brink of our own death, how can you throw yourself in behind this? This guy's actually a pretty good friend. Trying to help out even here at this point. And then the man said to Jesus, Lord, now get the word. Don't miss this word. It's easy for you to just reuse the word all the time. It's, 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 Easy to forget what it's saying. Lord, he's claiming the lordship of Christ. He's claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. He's claiming that Jesus has authority on the planet. Lord, the next thing he asks proves his faith. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember, Jesus starts his ministry preaching about the kingdom of God. This guy gets it. It's late. He's very late to the game, but he joins the winning team. And we know what's awesome about God? He doesn't care when you show up for the game. He'd like you to be there at the beginning because the game goes a lot better if you start with him. But he doesn't care if you show up late for the game. He's still willing to let you on his team. 
The game's already over. He's winning five million to one. And you are in the, it's the bottom of the ninth. The last batter on the other team has one pitch left. And you can join his team. You can walk out of the losing dugout, walk across the field and into the winning dugout and you will be declared a winner. Yeah, it's amazing grace. It's righteousness that we don't deserve that someone else purchased. This guy is literally breaths from death. He is literally breaths from death agonizing, difficult breaths at crucifixion. Those that are becoming so hard because the muscles in his arms are beginning to become too weak to lift him up, to open up his diaphragm so that he can get air. He is breaths from death. And he says, hey, take me with you. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Hold on just a second. Let me explain a couple things about this to you. There are some rules. There's a whole bunch of written in Scripture. You need to understand them all before you make this commitment. First of all, there there are 28. I'll go quickly. (laughs) The guy doesn't know the fundamental beliefs. What's wrong with him? We can't let him in that easy. Can we? Careful how you answer that question. Because if it's not about getting in, it's got to be about something else. And if you haven't found John 10.10 as the reason that church exists, This is going to be a battle for you. Jesus, giving the description of his mission, says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I've come that you might have life, eternal life, and a better life right here. Align yourself with me, and it will be better for you. You know all those things on the li- on your list that you shouldn't be doing more so much, right? All the things. Think about all the things that are on the list of oh, I probably shouldn't be doing that. They're in the Bible, and that that little voice that says you probably shouldn't be doing that. This is the Holy Spirit. This is not all that confusing. God says, "I, I just want you to. I just want you to have the best possible life." Here's how it works. I made the planet. I know how it functions. I made you. I know how you function. Here, align yourself like this and it'll work out better for you. But if you come lying in a hospital bed, breaths from dying, and you say, remember me when you come, in, when you come into your kingdom. He'll take you home. And there'll be a little tear and a little heartbreak because it took you so long. But this is about saving his children. This is about getting you home, not keeping you 
out. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Sure. I guarantee you, as I am speaking to you right now, as I am speaking to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Don't you want to meet this guy? We kind of poo-poo deathbed confessions. We kind of say, well, you know, we can't be sure about that. We don't have to. Not our problem. God knows the heart of man. He gets to decide who gets in. It is not up to us. We don't pick the winners in this game. Jesus does. And he died to give us the opportunity. Died in that moment so that that guy could be in paradise. What a story. Three men died. One was lost. One was saved. And the third one was the Savior, equally open to taking both of them or either of them home. We don't get to hear the whole story. We don't get to hear what went on from that point on. And I really hope that the guy on the other side saw the light before he took his last breath. You know that their legs were broken so that they would die more quickly. Jesus had already perished. And these two had minutes, maybe hours more, there on the cross, on either side of the deceased Savior, to talk, to use those difficult breaths. I hope that the one on the left convinces the one on the right. And that when we've met all of our old friends, greeted Jesus, sat down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I hope they'll both be there. Because it really wouldn't matter if it was the last, last breath. Because the one in the middle is dying for these guys so that he can take them on. There were four soldiers, as best we can tell, at the crucifixion. It was, it was typical that a squad would gather around the condemned and they would take a corner as they were moving through the crowd and they would walk through the crowd, keeping them in that sort of invisible square between them. John's the one who gives us the count. He says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. Hence four. This was actually common practice. It was, it was the sort of the, the gift of those who did this deed. They get to keep the clothes. We talked a little bit about this last week, that clothes were harder to come by then than they are now. They're more expensive then than they are now as a percentage of income. And these four guys get to divvy up the clothes. They take the shoes. They take the what would be the equivalent of a 
nightshirt, kind of a long t-shirt that was worn underneath, the turban. And then there's this outer garment. When the other guy's clothes, we don't seem to see anything. They don't say anything about him. But when it came to Jesus' clothes, they get to his outer tunic. And the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. The word seamless is without needle. It simply means without needle. There's no, nothing sewn on it. It was woven, literally woven in one piece. I don't know how you do that. Maybe uh, someone who weaves could tell me. I don't know how you do it. But woven is one piece. So they said, hey, let's, let's not tear this thing. This thing's really cool. Let's cast lots for it. Let's roll the dice for it. Um, it was fairly common. There's actually, if you're in, if you go to, if you if you go to Israel, and I would really strongly encourage you to go, go into Pilate's Praetorium. When you go in, you'll go to the Praetorium Guard, the place where the guards were, and there's actually an original floor. There's a, there's a part of the floor that's there from Roman times, which is spectacular. When you're in Israel, there's some roads that are, are from the original, from the Roman times. There are some floors that are from Roman times. When you go in, keep an eye on the floor. There are places where the soldiers have carved into the floor games. Just games. It's like a game board carved into a rock. They, you know, Mattel wasn't there, so they had to make their own. And so they carved this game, these games, and they're still there. There are actually several of them in the floors around in the Praetorium. A bunch of bored soldiers, I guess. So it was un- wasn't uncommon for them to do this sort of thing. And so they decide to cast lots for Jesus' tunic, the outer piece of his clothing. One of them won. We don't know which one. As this progresses through the day, it's gone from 6 o'clock in the morning and it's really gone from the day before. And Jesus has come to his last breath. And when he breathes his last and cries out with a loud voice, the centurion who stood opposite him, so I don't know what that means, opposite him, I guess looking at his face, the centurion who stood opposite him, saw that he cried out, breathed his last, and the centurion said, truly this man was the Son of God. Now, if you were to read this in Greek, the, the definite article is not there. It doesn't say the Son of God. You'll see some translations that will say a son of the gods. But when you read the contextual commentary about things that are godly, they very often leave off that definite article like this. So whether we should be translating it the Son of God or a Son of the Gods or a Son of God, this centurion sees something different. 
he sees something different. One of these guys, one of these four has won the game. One of them has not only his little pile of things, maybe, you know, each of them gets a, a sh- couple of shoes. There's, you know, three of them have shoes, a couple of them, one of them has something else. They've added an extra tunic or extra thing to one of the others to make up for his missing shoe. And they've got sort of equal piles, but one of them has this really cool one-piece robe of Jesus. And, and he's kind of probably holding it up. Hey, look at it, guys. This is really cool. It, it was good that we didn't tear this up. I'm really glad I won. And uh, yeah, my wife's going to love this. And he's, he's folding it nicely and packing it away with his stuff there, getting ready to go home because this is just a work day to him. Who won? Two of these guys just went home from work. One of these guys went home with Jesus' tunic. But the centurion, he saw God. The centurion's being fitted for the robe of righteousness. One of the thieves already has one. And this guy recognizes God. Very, very, very old church tradition. Said that this was the first Gentile convert to Christianity. How cool is that? One of these guys rolls the dice walks off with a really nice piece of clothing. And the other one sees what's happening. And he's getting fitted for the robe of righteousness. Who won? What game were they playing? What are the stakes? You see, this had been predicted Hundreds of years before. The psalmist had said, The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. They didn't even realize they were in a game. They were in a scene set hundreds of years before. What game are they playing? What are the stakes? Two thieves hung next to Jesus. One joined the crowd ridiculing him. And one joined the ransomed by his sacrifice. Four centurions, or four Roman soldiers, there's only one centurion among them, stood around the cross doing their job, killing a guy. It's what they do. They'll take him down, dispose of the bodies. One of them took Jesus' tunic home. One of them has a collision with God. Who won? Around the cross, 
were a bunch of men who had shouted for the blood of Jesus. They had cried out to Pilate, We have no king but Caesar. They had cried out to Pilate, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! And now, they've had the satisfaction of hours of belittling him in front of the rest of the nation as people walked by. It's on a main road intentionally. And as people walked by, they're pointing out, yeah, this is the guy. This is the one who said he could rebuild the temple in three days if it were torn down. Yeah, now where's all the big talk? This is the one people say could raise people from the dead, heal the blind, all that sort of stuff. Poppycock. He can't even get himself off the cross. These guys, these guys think they're winning. And the winner is hanging on the cross. Behind the scenes, in an unseen realm, the devil and his angels stirring up the crowd, encouraging this nonsense. And he thinks he's winning. And the winner is the man who's dying. Are we winning at the wrong game? Are you throwing your voice in with the crowd or behind some nonsense you really know isn't true? Are you struggling with not fitting in as well as you'd hoped? Are you winning battles that you shouldn't even be engaged in? Have you begun to gather up all the toys you can so that you can keep track of the score? We need to be careful we're not winning at the wrong game. Because what's really happening here is that God, God of the universe, was so concerned about you and I missing heaven that he chose death so that we could choose life and win. Let's pray. Father God, What happened on the cross is a complete confusion to the world. Who wins by losing? Who's cleansed by blood? Who finds answers from a dead Savior? And yet like that that thief hanging next to him we have found him to be our only hope. 
that the scoreboard is all messed up. And who our world says wins isn't at all accurate. Thank you that you would rather die than have us miss the opportunity to go home. Thank you that you take people who are even on their last breath. Thank you that the point of the cross was the covering of our sins and the cleansing of our sin from us. And that even folks like us can go home covered by the robe of righteousness. We choose Jesus today. Amen.